Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Ruby Rogues. I'm David Kamira, and today on our panel, we have Luke Stutters. Hello. Darren Brummer. Greetings, everyone. John Napperson. Hello, everybody. And today we have a special guest, and it is Max Anselm. Hi. So Max, would you please just introduce yourself, tell us a bit about you, who you work for, and some of the things that you do? Sure. So right now, I'm a uh, software engineer at Lutron Electronics. We make lighting control systems. Most people haven't heard of us, but if you have really fancy lights in your homes, you probably have. I have um, some of your light switches. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so I work on our mobile applications kind of in a software architecture position. So right now I'm spending a lot of time thinking about like how to do cross-platform mobile development, how to get like automated and tested release pipelines working and things like that. But outside of that, I just love Ruby. I learned it. It was probably the first programming language I really thoroughly learned. And it's just stuck with me. I use it for hobby projects. And uh, whenever I need to script something that's more complicated than Bash, I always use Ruby. And yeah, that's, that's basically what I do. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. I completely get the feel every single time that I'm like working with something random and it's just like, I need to like do some complicated data munging that's a little bit harder yeah. than me opening up Sublime, commanding every line that's the same and then like replacing a couple of things. If it gets a little bit harder than that, I'm like, let's whip out some Ruby. Oh, yeah. 100%. So you mentioned making mobile applications and doing a whole idea of cross-platform. And so essentially, that is one code base that you can compile to both iOS and Android. What has been the golden ticket language or framework that you found to accomplish that? The most promising we have right now is Kotlin, actually, through Kotlin Multi-Platform Mobile, which is... Technically still like an alpha project, not quite ready for the real world, but we're playing with it anyway. And that's just, I mean, as far as I can tell how it works under the hood, it's really just compiling down to like sort of like a C or C++ kind of dynamic library. So in a way, the language doesn't really matter. Kotlin seems okay. I haven't used it very much. It has some neat features, but it could almost be, I think, any language. It's really just a question of how good are the tools for building it and how good it is like, you know, the debugging tools and things like that. That's what really uh, makes or breaks it at the end of the day. What are some of the other things that you've tried just to kind of get a feel for, for that? We tried Go because we use that a lot at our company. And so we thought, oh, let's try the familiar thing. We tried Rust a little bit. Uh, I don't know if we ever looked at, what's the C-sharp one that died a while ago? Xamarin. Xamarin, yeah. We tried out Xamarin, I think, briefly, but then luckily we decided not to go with that because <laughs> it did die. But yeah, it, it's, it seems like no one's really cracked this yet, but this column multi-platform thing seems 
promising for now. But gotcha. um, yeah, I mean, in my mind, like I, I'm still, I can't help but think like, you know, why not Ruby? <laughs> if we could make that work, that'd be cool. Yeah, and I know Ruby Motion does do both Android and iOS compiling, but it's not a singular code base, or at least from a couple of years ago when I tried it, it wasn't a singular code base because they had no common API wrapper for the actual native APIs. So if you wanted to interact with hardware on Android, then you had to write a specific function versus one for iOS was a different function. So you kind of had a singular code base that was kind of sharded or fractioned into two different sections. And you could reuse some like plain old Ruby object components that you create, but you still have kind of two code bases kind of running parallel, kind of touching some of each other's code. So it was a bit strange. I don't know if that's changed yet. React Native has a similar issue as well. I think React Native is in a bit better place. I think that most everything has common API and only some things you have to like kind of delve down. But you also have to, so you you have your React Native section of the code base and then you also kind of have to maintain like at least the the framework outline of your Android and iOS code base. I mean, theoretically, you could write a very simple app that you didn't have to do that. But I feel like, I mean, all it takes is like any native thing and you suddenly have to eject. So like every single app pretty much has to eject is basically what what it looks like to me. Yeah, I haven't written an app where you didn't have to. Yeah, I think that's where it gets really hard. And like we're trying to, I think that's the biggest question at the end of the day is like, how do you make that escape hatch as easy to use as possible without just polluting your whole code base with like Android and iOS specific quirks everywhere. Yeah. And so from a business perspective for a small company, because if you are a small company and you have a really cool web application or something, and you know that the market really wants an Android and an iOS application, Right now, you kind of almost have to have two different developers or someone with both skill sets to maintain and build both applications. Or you can get one developer that knows enough to be dangerous in both and create a hybrid application with like Turbo and iOS and Android. Yeah. You still don't get that true native feel. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like right now, that's what we do. All of our development is multiplied by two. Because we want that native feel, and it's a huge pain. So I, w- I want to throw one other thing in there, not because I've gotten to use it before, because but because one of my mentees is super into it. I don't know if you guys have run across Flutter or whatever, mm-hmm. but one of my mentees that like he's kind of started moving off and towards like the mobile app side of things or whatever, and he's finally landed himself a Flutter job, so he's thoroughly excited or whatever. But that one seems that one's a little bit different. If I don't know if anyone here is familiar with like Flex, but I did like mm-hmm. Flex back in the day, which was like you write a bunch of like XML-ish looking code, right? And then you would you would call out to functions, right, to insert some stuff in in there or whatever. It's really not too crazy different than like doing ERB, you know, and doing Ruby, but like I feel like your perspective is different when you're I don't know the it just feels very different to me. But the Adobe Flex. What's up? Is it Adobe Flex? It was Adobe, uh, Adobe, yeah, Adobe's. Adobe. I got you, Adobe. Adobe, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Adobe. The Flex. English oh. version of Adobe. <laughs> yes, so it looks a lot like Flex to me. It 
what from what I've seen, because I go to like these Flutter meetups because it looks cool and interesting and way cooler than React Native, which really gives me a lot of grief. And I'm kind of hoping that like maybe for the next app, like this is the thing that I maybe want to try or whatever. I've been doing a lot of things. It looks really cool and looks to be a lot more promising than the last gen, but we'll see. So anyway, I'm not necessarily putting it out there as like you should try it. Just it's interesting and I'm <laughs> to take this to take this a little away from the the mobile world. Like I th- I think the circumstances at Lutron are actually a little bit different from a lot of companies because unlike most, our mobile app is not just like a fancy web front end um, because most of our apps actually interact with uh, lighting control systems that we design. And so the problems that we have right now are things like uh, data duplication and redundancy and like where you kind of like break up the different components of the system and where different things live. And so we're kind of looking at the big picture of like, not just like, how do we share our iOS and Android code bases, but like, well, what if we have code also in the cloud or also in like one of our smart hubs that's in your closet somewhere? Like, what if all of these are kind of sharing some kind of code base together? And so something like Flutter or Xamarin like that or Ruby Motion is like not going to cut it for us because we're thinking about like, how do we transfer data between all these totally different platforms that have nothing to do with mobile? And that's where you start getting into like, you really have to start thinking like totally abstractly because it has nothing to do with like any particular use case or platform anymore. And it gets really difficult to tackle that. That makes sense. So, so what you're saying is like basically like just having an API backend to kind of be like I don't know your sort of like home base that everybody's pulling from isn't isn't good enough because right because for us it's like I think a lot of our services work like that right now but then sometimes there's like multiple backends and sometimes you can kind of treat them all the same but sometimes you care which one is which and then it just becomes like this massive headache because you just have to start like duplicating code everywhere to deal with all these subtly different use cases. And we're trying to figure out a way to stop doing that. And so it's like, is there some future where you have this like, I don't know, almost like a distributed code base that everything is sharing, but it maybe it's only living in one place, but like the front end code ideally shouldn't know where the code lives, right? It's, it's just like calling out and doing its job. And maybe that's like routing through the cloud to some server somewhere, or maybe it's like talking over SSH to a Linux processor in your closet. It, it should be like this whole like distributed agnostic layer. It's just incredibly difficult. But I think that's where things like multi-platform code are necessary because you want it to be flexible in that way. And that's where I, I, I go to things like Crystal and I start thinking about these like new exciting programming languages that could possibly solve those problems. I think the answer is always blockchain, right? You just say blockchain and decentralization, and then your company's value goes way up or something like that. Yeah, we'll try that. And, and then all of your all of your light bulbs can trade Dogecoin as well. Yes, I mean, trade. I mean, they start mining it, right? Yeah, that's what I was say. It, yeah. They're literally doing nothing all day long. I mean, it's got a little right. processor in there waiting for you to click some button somewhere. Might as well put that processor to work in the meantime. <laughs> Yeah, our, our tagline is Lutron saves you energy. So maybe that's not going to work well for us. Oh, yeah. You're going to have to change that tagline so that you can. <laughs> well, now you can say that Lutron makes you money. 
and also sends Lutron a, a small piece of Bitcoin every hundred. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, a bit of naive question because I, I, I just only know of like AWS's IoT Internet of Things services. I have just a very vague awareness of them. But do services like this help help out at all in these regards? I haven't really dug into them, but I think they're trying to help solve some of the same problems, at least, that you're talking about. They help a little bit, but I think a lot of companies are not going in the same direction as Lutron. They want to make everything just like work over your Wi-Fi network and all the logic is in the cloud. And as soon as your internet dies, your smart home becomes a dumb home, <laughs> which is not what we want. And so we we try to like push it like, let's actually have like the light bulbs, your smart light bulbs actually be smart on their own. And they can talk directly over like a local wireless network that doesn't even use your router to like the processor that's running the system. So like, even if your internet dies, your smart home is still smart. And so there you need like a much higher degree of distributed logic and control. And I can say from experience, I would really appreciate that because last year or so, I went for a walk with my family. At the time, we had three kids and we're at four now, but we went for a walk and we didn't bring our keys. We just brought our phone because we have one of the smart home garage store openers. Well, we had a internet connectivity issue. When we came back, kids were hot. They were just done with walking, wanted to get inside. And we couldn't open up our garage, which was the only entry point into our house. So I ended up having to break a window. You know, I tried to find the smallest window to break. And so took off my shoe, punched the window. It broke. It stayed together in one piece. It just kind of fell out of the panel onto my car, scratched up my car, so what I thought was going to be a $20 window fix ended up being like a $1,000 damage. So I would definitely appreciate a cloud-based solution, but then had a offline redundancy that you could still access. So good job on you all. I don't know how much light bulbs really kind of play into like that kind of critical need of access. But you know, if you guys ever venture into the garage door opener space, you have my business. Sure, yeah. If you can put a light on your garage door, maybe we'll consider it. Are the light bulbs running Ruby? That's what I want to know. Can I run <laughs> Ruby on my light bulb? And can I just say the ability to check like on your phone whether you remembered to close the garage door? That to me is like probably one of the best uses of technology ever. Because how many times I've left my house, gotten like five blocks away. Did I remember to close the garage door? Yeah. For for us, yeah, it's not that crucial. It's more like I'm in bed. Oh, I forgot to turn the light off in the kitchen. And I can just like, you know, talk to Siri and tell her to do it. So not as critical, but it, it is quite annoying. Like if that stuff stops working randomly and you have to actually hoof it over to the switch. Does having this extra sort of mesh network going on, does that interfere with my home Wi-Fi mesh network? Am I, am I just adding a crap ton of extra devices here in the same radio space? Or is that a completely different radio band? I don't, I'm not the expert of that. I know that we tested that specifically. So we, we try very hard to avoid interfering. Yeah. Awesome. Sweet. So I have a question then based off of all of this. So you, you mentioned crystal and then we like kind of like started going down this line a little bit. Does, does crystal solve some of these issues for you? Does Ruby solve some of these issues for you or not? Like how are you using some of these things maybe? Yeah. So I think the thing that I find exciting about Crystal is that it gives you 
this like wonderful flexibility of Ruby and the way that it can express very complex ideas in a very simple way. And it lets you compile that. I believe it uses LLVM. So it like runs on everything, which is great. And basically like the more programming languages that, that come out using LLVM, the more excited I get. Like, I think this is such a huge resource that everybody should be like utilizing. I would love it if like somehow just like vanilla Ruby could solve this problem for us. I think realistically, it's just not there, which I think you see from like basically anyone who's used Ruby in a production environment, I'm pretty sure they use some kind of like extensive environment management system where it's like inside a Docker container or using like RBM or whatever the other one is, RVM, just because like pulling in a whole Ruby ecosystem can be pretty fragile and trying to maintain this, a stable state of that is pretty tricky. Like even for the mobile applications we build, part of that build process uses some Ruby scripts and we had to put in like a surprising amount of effort just to make those scripts reliable, which was a little bit disappointing. It's not exactly just like, oh, it works on every machine without thinking. Fair enough. I think Crystal is Ruby. Crystal is Ruby, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. If I was if I was Matt, so I'd be suing. I wouldn't be doing the Crystal Land conference. I'd be taking that lawsuit Oracle style for a blatant, blatant ripoff. I could I took one of my little programs and you just tell it to it's a .cr file mm-hmm. and uh, you've got a binary essentially. One yeah. thing I couldn't do in Crystal was find any libraries. I, I I still haven't worked out where so they don't have gems in Crystal. They have shards. Get it? Because it's yeah. It's, uh, I I thought isn't it supposed to be able to just like try at least to compile a gem as if it's a shard? I don't know. I've only been using it for an hour. Yeah, we're, we're, I think we're a bunch of like ignorant people trying to guess about this thing. I thought it could like try its hand and, and just see if it worked or not. It was, was what I was really looking for was the equivalent of like rubygems.org for, yeah, for right. shards. I, I, I could not, I, it must be out there, but I couldn't find it. Yeah, I don't know. That's, yeah, I guess the thing that what interests me about Crystal is like, I think when it comes to practically using Ruby, especially if you're talking about enterprise or like scale production, like customer facing cases, I don't think many people actually are like fully leveraging like the crazy dynamic flexibility of Ruby. They're not like loading strings and evaling them. <laughs> I don't think most people do that. And so I've, I've sort of had this hunch for a while. It's like, surely it must be the case that like 90% of Ruby that is written could be compiled to like an efficient machine code representation. And so I'm just excited to see someone like finally trying to make that happen with Crystal. I'm not sure where it's going to end up yet. One thing I did find in my Crystal Adventures is that it does take a while for Crystal to compile your app or start if it's not compiling. Uh, If you start a Ruby script, it's there like that, you know, straight away. Crystal can take a bit of time to, to iterate on a new version of your code. It's funny in a way. It's like you hear these stories from the olden days of people like, there's like that XKCD comic where people are like sword fighting and the boss is like, what are you doing? My code's compiling. It's like, we're almost getting back there now with things like Rust and Crystal. But like, in a way, isn't that nice that like the computers are doing the hard work and we can just take a break? I do love it. Also, I feel like now though, now you compile stuff and then you have to go work on one of your other services is actually... (laughs) What it's turned into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have, have a couple side projects. 
Yeah, I just say that, Matt. Capybara tests are running. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then you can't use your computer. So one thing that I actually thought maybe we should or that we could get into, I don't know if you use any tooling. One of the things that I found very useful during my mobile time was Fastlane, which is a Ruby, which is written in Ruby. Yeah. And I know that uh, Dave, you were you were talking earlier about your uh, your pain with with MRuby or what or Ruby Motion, sorry, not Ruby. And and look, Fastlane doesn't solve everything, but it does take care of a lot of cool things, which is nice because there's so much freaking stuff to do in mobile development. Like as a Ruby developer, then going to other ecosystems and trying to do work, I feel completely un uh, unenabled. Like I just, it's like the person, it's like the people involved in those languages were like, how can we possibly make this harder to develop in? Like, I, I think every language does that. That's yeah. not Ruby. And uh, mobile development is like literally that way. You just, there's so many manual steps and I'm oh, so yeah. used to just being able to like write my code, commit it to get and boom, everything else is done. I own my test run. It gets deployed. Everything's very cool. It's completely automated. Right. Like, and I love that. And and I like that a lot of ecosystems are trying to make that happen all around the way, but but mobile development's not like that at all. You've got to manage all your certs and like you got you have these manual compiles. Even if you're using like a multi-platform thing, you're gonna have to like create a new binary for iOS and or I guess a new artifact, whatever it's called, and new thing for Android. And you got to upload them both separately to the store and go through their separate processes. And it's anyway, the whole thing is Ruby makes. A lot of that, a lot easier. Uh, Fastlane is a super cool tool. And I have loved writing custom actions for it and getting to leverage my Ruby chops over there. So anyway, long story short, Fastlane, anything else cool? And any other way that maybe you use Ruby over there? Well, it's funny because we did try Fastlane. I actually have a blog post about not using Fastlane anymore. Um, oh, dang. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny because like, at first, I loved it too. And I was like, oh, this makes everything so nice. But then when it breaks, it doesn't help you at all. And it it breaks all the time because ultimately, it is still using these like horrible manual mobile deployment processes that are very hard to automate. So it's totally understandable that it breaks. But then if you're on the line to get the build out the door, it's like, why am I using this tool, which is using this tool, which is breaking? Why am I just trying to fix the tool that I actually have to use at the end of the day, which is... Xcode. So I think there's like a benefit to things like Fastlane, you know, trying to make it more accessible and more automatable. And for things like that, yeah, Ruby is like the perfect language, in my opinion. But then there's also so much benefit that like when you're learning one of these platforms, it sucks so bad having to learn them, but it really helps a lot to just learn how the sausage is made and figure it out. I'm always amazed, like so many Android developers I talk to I'm like, do you know how Gradle works? And they're just like, I have no idea. I just like copy paste stuff from the internet until the build passes. And it's just like, it, it's terrifying to me. It's like, why don't you people actually know how your code is compiled? Like it almost doesn't even count as programming. I totally take that argument, right? Like it's, but I, I also definitely am, I am a, I'm a big believer in enabling, I don't know Gradle guy to be, to be able to do work at, like do work every day whatever on a daily basis and then like yeah, yeah. only uh only in emergencies like then you have to break out the axe or whatever but sure. but yeah. yeah i also understand like it's also very frustrating at the same time once you've enabled somebody like that right then they like show up at your doorstep at 1 a.m they're like 
everything's broken. I have a fire and you're the only person that I know that can help me. Right. Like it's now your problem. So, yeah, well you said before, it's like, what other cool stuff are we doing with Ruby? So the main thing that we do in our production pipelines is whenever there's one of these like weird processes that is just like esoteric knowledge that you have to like dig through for hours to figure it out. I capture that in a Ruby script that will do that job in a very easy way. And that's, in my mind, that solves the problem like completely because then it's like, one, it's easy for everyone else to use. They can just run my nice little Ruby script. And also Ruby is like so simple and readable. Anyone can crack open that script and see exactly what it's doing so that if something breaks, it's easy to debug. And that's basically what I replaced Fastlane with is like, I, I now have like three Ruby scripts that do everything that I used to do with Fastlane. And I, it's not like this massive list of like gem dependencies that we have to put in our, our bundle file. So yeah, that, that's basically what we do with Ruby. I think that makes sense. I think from my aspect, right? Like I wrote a bunch of custom actions, which if you're not familiar mm -hmm. with Fastlane, you can pull in like plugins from other places, which is, you know, kind of like grabbing a gem or, I mean, they basically are gems kind of actually no they might not even be i don't really remember but you you write your class in a specific way and fastly knows how to use it basically is the thing at the end of the day and plugins are providing that for you but you can also just write them yourselves and like shove them in the folder and like for me i think that's more or less accomplishing the same task as you which is like i am covering over the hairy parts of the script that have broken for me in the past with my own stuff that like just greases the wheels and i can find it and read it later because or somebody else can find it and read it later. Yeah. Cool. You know, I kind of went through this ordeal of streamlining and scripting a lot of what we were doing at my day job for managing our environment, pulling down new code, which is really important if you have microservices because you're dealing with 10, 20, 100 different repositories, trying to get them all to work together and keeping things up to date is a bit more tedious than just a single monolith application. So I originally wrote everything in a bash script that had a nice little menu that you can use up and down arrow keys and stuff. But then when I had to go in there and maintain that, it was kind of a pain because just how much you had to write in bash to get things working properly, the weird syntax and some you know, the stuff that usually comes along with Bash, awking stuff and all that fun stuff. So I redid it all recently in Ruby, just making a plain old Ruby object script and makes it executable and actually predated all of this with my findings on creating command line applications, a recent episode that I did on Drift and Ruby. And that was a night and day difference on maintaining that file that executable for maintaining the environment and just overall the readability of it. So mm -hmm. I think Ruby definitely has a space outside of web development. I just kind of found my niche and likings in the web development space, but I do use Ruby for quite a few other things outside of that. Troubleshooting too, especially now that we're all binding.pry like debuggers, maybe not oh, all of yeah. us, but like, like that's just so much... In certain cases, that's so much superior to like just having to output stuff as text to debug yeah. things. Yeah, I love throwing just like a binding.pry in the middle of one of my scripts. I was completely agreeing with you, by the way, Dave. That was my goal there. <laughs> it is a little bit tricky, though. I'm the only person on my team who knows Ruby. <laughs> so I like encourage everyone to read them and like they can 
get the gist of it, but it, it does sort of create a bit of a maintenance problem. I mean, no one on my team knows basically any kind of scripting. So it's like, even if I wrote it in bash, they'd be lost. It's just, I feel like scripting languages are almost like a lost art among a certain segment of programmers. I think, I think it actually surprises me that people don't know multiple languages, right? Like I, I, when you encounter somebody who's like, this is the language that I know or whatever, and this is all I use. And I'm neither interested in like figuring out what this other thing is that you've plopped in front of me or it just surprises me actually, but keep encountering it and I just accept it. Yeah. It's the setting in which that occurs to me the most is like whenever I'm giving a, a coding interview, I always let them pick the language of their choice. So I feel like as an interviewer, it's my responsibility to be familiar. So like I try to know every mainstream language because I don't want to be the jerk who's like, well, if you can't write it in C++, it doesn't count. And because uh, like, you know, that doesn't matter at the end of the day for something like a coding interview. So yeah, I, I don't know. I've never heard a candidate be like, oh, you, you'll let me pick the language that I want. That's nice. Actually, I'm not. I don't really understand what you guys are talking about. Like, you can't just use Ruby for everything. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? If only. It's true. So, no, uh, just kidding. You don't. Uh, you don't realize how good Ruby is until you use other other languages. In fact, oh, you're yeah. talking about. You know, we've been talking a lot about mobile space. This is true. Also, another. Well, mobile's been around for a while, but an emerging space is blockchain. We referenced that earlier. So if you look at writing smart contracts, so one of the more established languages today is Solidity, which is works on the Ethereum blockchain, but it's much closer to C or C++ than it is anything else. And if I had the time or inclination, or maybe someone else was already working on a smart chain, sorry, a blockchain language for smart contracts that you can use with Ruby, that would be that would be fantastic. It's early days in this space, so I'm sure the tooling and languages will get better, but that's kind of where we're at now. Hey, folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say, Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have the situation. How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. And Max, speaking of using Ruby and C and all that stuff, you have published 
tutorial or a guide about running Ruby in C and running C in Ruby. Would you mind introducing that and telling us a bit about it? Sure. Yeah, so it's called Emburb. It's on my GitHub, which I don't know if like you'll link it on this podcast. But yeah, this was... Let me let me kind of go into the background of this, which was basically I'm into like video game development as a hobby. And in that space, there are a lot, a lot of scripting languages, especially for things like, you know, runtime configuration of games. And one of the most popular languages there is a language called Lua. I don't know if any of you have used that. And because it, it was used by Bioware in Baldur's Gate. So uh, <laughs> that's how I know Lua. There you go. And I, World of Warcraft. Yeah, like I said, tons They're very of popular games. in gaming. Yeah, it's I don't know I don't know exactly why. I think there's like technical reasons why companies like to use it. And I, I learned it a little bit and I found it just like so bizarre. It's just like a very strange language. It has lots of really tricky quirks. I don't know. I found it hard to learn from like more mainstream languages. And I, you know, because I love Ruby, I was like, well, why can't you just use Ruby as the scripting language for your game? How would you do that? And so that's when I started reading the official documentation on how to like load Ruby, like the Ruby VM inside your C program. And then, because I was using like SDL to make a video game at the time. And that was just a nightmare. And so I started reading all these blog posts about it. And that just like made me more confused because it was just all these random blog posts from like a span of like probably 10 years that had been written. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to figure this out for myself and I'm going to write it down. And rather than just making it like this random tiny blog post, I'm going to like be totally thorough and just like figure out everything. Like how do you use every single part of the programming language when you're using the C API? And so I just like did that in my spare time. And I ended up not even like making the game because it was just like so interesting to figure out all these little quirks. So yeah, now everything's written down. It, it kind of takes you through. It's almost like learning Ruby for the first time, but when you're writing Ruby in C. So it walks you through like, how do you define a variable? How do you define a function? How do you hook all these little pieces up? So it seems to be getting moderately popular on, on GitHub. It has almost 200 stars now. And my whole dream for this, my diabolical plan was like, people are gonna read this and then Ruby is gonna explode in popularity the way Python has, because now Python's in this Python used to be Django and like random scripts. And now Python is like the language for machine learning. I was like, I want Ruby to explode like that because the secret with Python is that they have NumPy, right? Someone wrote this really good C library for Python that's super fast. You could do the same thing with Ruby using the techniques in my guide. And yeah, maybe it won't be machine learning, but some other field, you know, I want Ruby to explode and, and be the thing that everyone uses. Definitely. Plus one to that. There are so many articles I read, and I'm, I'm very interested in this topic as well. And then when you dive into it, it's it's almost always like a Python implementation yep. of whatever they're doing. And you know, you're looking for Ruby alternatives, and there's there's a few gems or libraries out there, but it's usually not at the cutting edge of what's happening. Yep. This is super cool. I think uh, one thing that like I've always been a proponent of is if you can't get something done like in Ruby because you think it's like slow or something, just run Sidekick on the side or in like shell out, right? Like, or I mean, if you're running a script, I guess you can shell out right there. But I'm just like, I've always just told people to like, just shell out, run it from somewhere else. It's very cool. I'm a big fan of mixing and matching, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. And being able to like natively mix and match, I think will get more people sold than just like the people that just happen to value mixing and matching like me in the first place, I think. Because I think it's an easy sell for me. It's a harder sell for somebody that's like, well, I don't, 
know what I would do to tie these two things together. And it just seems so hard that I'm just going to give up right away and like complete. Instead, I'm going to do the even harder thing of completely rewriting my entire application in another language because that it, it doesn't seem as scary to me. I feel like it's like I've, I guess if I'm summing up the things that I have heard from people over the years, that's what I feel like people are, have have chosen to do. So yeah. this is cool. Yeah. yeah. I, if things get hard or you know slow, you just throw more money at it, right? That's basically how you address that problem. And I'm, I mean that in a kind of serious way. Because to give you an example that I'm actually going through right now. So I release weekly episodes on driftandruby.com for my Ruby-based tutorial site. Mostly it's Rails stuff. But one of the things that I do with the video which is usually about 100 megabytes, is I will use FFmpeg to create adaptive bitrate streaming. So I'll generate two versions, a 720p and a 1080p, but they're all in 10-second chunks. So the player that I'm using, VideoJS, will select which version is going to best fit your bandwidth. And it'll automatically switch over to a lower but still readable resolution if you are in a different country far away from the servers and that kind of good stuff. But the problem is, is that that transcoding process takes about 40 minutes. And the issue with that is that I'm running them on background workers and that will have a couple of issues. One, it'll slam the CPU. So the auto scaling is going to now provision new servers because it thinks it's under massive load and it needs to handle that traffic. But that's not actually the case. It's just this one job, this one point in time on one day a week that it's actually doing it. So not only do I have to wait 40 minutes before I actually publish the episode, but I'm also now, quote, paying a bit more money for these auto-scaling services to spin up when it really doesn't need to. So I've been playing with the idea of extracting that portion off of the production environment where it's running, create an API where it can ingest in these 10-second video chunks and have a server farm at home because I already have all the hardware. Or even if I ran it within a Docker container somewhere, then it would do all the heavy lifting and heavy calculations on something where I can actually buy a computer that has some massive CPU power and RAM and do all that transcoding there and then ship up these files up to AWS. So sometimes, you know, architecting it and throwing a bit of money at it can solve the problem. But, you know, as far as light bulbs and your decentralized or your cloud based but failover non cloud based, I don't know how that relates back. And I just say, Dave, as a uh, Drifting Ruby viewer, that is super annoying because I'm always watching the Drifting Ruby videos and the screen goes blurry and I can't read the text. I think, oh, my word, my eyesight is getting worse and worse. And then I realize it's not that. It's just my bandwidth. So I used to have a 360p encoding, which I have since gone through all the videos and removed because it's just not really viewable or readable at that resolution. So they should all be 720p now, at the very least. <laughs> you have to. You might have to remove that one too. Apparently, Luke is so old that... Just kidding. 1080p and 4K. It's the only thing that works. Yep, nothing else. 
otherwise Luke won't be able to see it. Yeah, I want to I want to talk about the throwing money at it thing because yeah, where are we going with that? Right. Ways to solve. Yeah, yeah. Ways ways to solve these like interoperability problems and stuff like that. I think I haven't thought about it from that angle before because I think more what I was hoping that my guide would solve was like when you want either it's like those two situations that I can think of. It's like when you wish that Ruby could just like do something natively, it's actually pretty easy to just make it do it natively using this API. And I wish people would like learn about that option and make their Ruby programs just amazing. Or when like you want your application to have someone steal kind of some of the fancy flexibility of Ruby, it also lets you do that. And that's where I, I want to see people utilize. Like that's where, if anything, like something like my company would use Ruby, where it's like we would probably embed it inside like an application running on like the Linux hub where it's using Ruby to do like the sophisticated like runtime configuration that would be extremely difficult to implement in like a static language. That that actually seems like a good, obviously good application too. Yeah. Anything where we can like lift people up and get them to be like, look, all these other languages, they're just hard to write. Just learn Ruby. And some of the more interested people will just write a ton of C libraries for you to run. Yeah. I will say that having tried to write C Ruby interfaces, that is quite hard to do. I had a go at doing some uh, machine vision, is that what you call it? You know, getting the uh, real Raspberry Pi camera uh, to pick out a number plate. You can copy paste something in Python because someone's already kind of done all the C linking. And I find that very unintuitive, even having gone through the, uh, was it M MKMF yep. stuff? Yeah, um, Makefile. I just wonder if there's an additional abstraction out there that mm. could simplify that process. Because the, the guide you've written is a fantastic guide. It's, it's a really good, great guide to how it works. But it doesn't make it fundamentally easier <laughs> yeah. it just teaches you how to do something hard and yeah. you get spoiled in ruby because everything is so so easy when you do it right and then suddenly you have to delve into the horrible world of c and uh, that's, that's a tough world yeah it takes a certain kind of masochism i think to enjoy tackling with that because c is just like fundamentally spiky I know there's like there's the Ruby FFI gem for in function interface that you can use as a shortcut where you can call into a dynamic library directly from Ruby. But that I, I feel like that's a great tool to have in your tool belt, but it's not the same because it's like you're not gonna obviously you don't have any compile time checks around that. So now you're getting like all of the fragility of Ruby with the seg faults of C. Yay. <laughs> I um I started Ruby programming not on web apps, uh, on GTK desktop mm. apps. We had a um, retail system that was uh, Ruby plugging plugging directly in uh, using whatever horrible C interface that particular application was using. And my word was that thing unstable. That mm. thing segfaulted. We, we're kind of talking Ruby 187 here. That thing segfaulted all the time. And you couldn't even rescue nil it because if you get an exception in your C that you've kind of linked in through your nice Ruby program, that just blows the whole thing away. You can't you can't rescue a segfault. So I ended up ended up doing what John was saying, just shelling everything out in a kind of self 
self-defensive tactics everywhere just saying this 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 whole thing that touches fonts we can't trust it this must be you know this must be like a sacrificial process that we we'd uh, dangle over there at kind of arm's length so yeah i had some bad had some, can you tell i had some bad experiences with this i, I think you can i think you can yeah. this is the pain point and i do i do wonder if any of the if there's anything in Python that just fundamentally makes that easier, I don't. I don't know of anything. I think Python just the advantage it has is the um, the momentum. Because as far as I know, you can crash Python just as easily as you can crash Ruby once you go into the C land. And they just have so many eyes on it that they've hammered out all of those instabilities. I agree. Like, there's definitely a lot of pain involved if you're going with the Ruby and C interoperability. I haven't honestly haven't committed to what the future of this looks like. I'm sort of playing both sides so that I come out on top either way, which is like, part of me is like, Crystal, great, let's go with that. And part of me is like, let's make everyone hop on board the CAPI train, even though they're kind of antithetical to each other. Solving, in my mind, solving similar problems in completely different ways. But yeah, we don't have to pick. It's just people, if you're interested, you should try it out because I don't have enough time. I need to recruit people to try things out for me and forge the future of this language yeah there are i mean one of one of the issues like that you're talking about like or that luke is kind of referencing right like so i've done like file io stuff right where you use like the open three or whatever it is uh however however you pronounce it in your uh, native tongue or whatever but uh if it if it has trouble for some reason because like it has buffer problems or like i I don't remember all the cases, but like there's so many cases where like one of the buffers has trouble, crashes everything, and and there's no recovery from that, and yeah. your your program set halted there. So I, shelling out like ends up being like your only protection against a lot of these things, and it's really stupid. Yeah, backticks. I tell you, backticks all the way. Yep. Yeah, which is fine too. I mean, which really... leads me on to another mini rant about backticks because you get a different environment when you backtick versus a system call. And I used to really struggle to explain this to people, that calling system is not the same as backticks because you're not in the same environment. And if you're not in the same environment, shutting out is an order of magnitude harder because uh, suddenly you've got to create another environment for that thing that you've just extracted. So you're you're going to now start hitting edge cases where oh you know this environment variable isn't set up this isn't in scope uh, rant over rant over use back uh, no I, I think that's a good point like I think John you mentioned the the Pope and three problem where it's like I, I was just reading this the other day because I was I was writing some glue scripts in Ruby and like the documentation says like oh yeah if you forget to read standard error or something and it produces too much output it's going to like lock up everything because but you don't have control like, over that and so it just right. makes you mad <laughs> and it's and like the documentation literally says like you should use io select to fix this problem and i'm like that is like the veneer is ripped away you're just writing c code now cuz like yeah. now you have to go read the man page for how select works and it's just like yeah it's such a shame yep it's very frustrating but so the thing that it, to speak to like what Luke is saying too, right? Like I think I think the issue, obvious in my mind, the issue is we don't have good enough tools around this space, right? Because at the end of the day, 
maybe I want a completely new shell. So system call is great. You know, like I, I've used that before intentionally for that purpose, right? And, and there have been plenty of things completely outside of Ruby where you might particularly want a new shell. So like that isn't a new problem anywhere. But yes, usually I'm just assuming that I'm shelling out and I have the same environment. And that's sort of the, just the assumption that's in the back of my brain. So yeah, most of the time I want to use backticks. And I don't know what the third one is off the top of my head or whatever. And I don't remember which way it behaves, but like the third one behaves like one of the other two. The third way to shell out, I don't remember. Anyway. Well, you've got right. system with an array or multiple arguments, haven't you? And then you've yep, got a system with a single string. Anyway, I thought there was another one. And maybe I'm just thinking of popping. Maybe that's all just all I'm what I'm thinking of here. Yeah. Um, but either way, though, like none of the things are good enough. They're not working. Yeah. The fact all, is that this library... What's up? They all have different arguments, which is really annoying. True. And the fact is that this library possibly gives us a way around some of those issues, maybe. I don't know. But what I'm really excited about is for, because IO is not really my thing. Like, we all have interests. It's not my thing. Maybe I've delved deep enough that I vaguely understand some of the pieces about it. But uh, I'm mostly just going to be, like, angry and shake my fist rather than go and solve it, to be honest. Unless it's, like really costing me tons of money or something, right? I'm excited for the day that somebody's like, huh, this really cool Ember B thing or Ember thing enables me to like finally fix this pop-in problem. Open, pop-in, pop-in, whatever it is, P open. And I'm excited for the day that we have the new version of that that uses Ember B. That's or Ember. See, I can't pronounce anything right now. Yeah, yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, I mean, we all, we'll just watch uh, rubygems.org. There should be a slew of new gems popping up immediately after this airs. Let me know. I'll test it out for you if you if you make it. No promises. Actually, if you're bored someday, I do this every once in a while. Just go on the Ruby Gems, the stats page, and just look at like what are the top 10, 20, 50 gems and just kind of see what's on the list. It's sometimes interesting, and sometimes you find things that you uh, hadn't checked out yet before and kind of fun to... Go shopping there. Mm. I'll tell you one thing that I found that Crystal had on the, related to gems uh, that I'm not sure if Ruby had. Uh, it's got like a built-in gem generator. They don't call them gems. They call them shards. But it's got a built-in library generator. You go crystal init live and it mm. will set you up your own crystal gem uh, straight out of the box with all the kind of files in place. And I, I don't, I'm not sure if Ruby has that. Does Ruby have a gem generator? There is. Hang on. Bundler. Well, no, no. There's it's not. It's not official, though. I believe you have to install it. Yeah, there is a there is a gem that gives you some really nifty stuff around it. Hang on, let me see. Uh, I know I have it in a project. Oh, I have it in Shiplane. That's right. Let me go look there. So yeah, I mean, to your point, Luke. Like, yeah, it's kind of crazy that Ruby doesn't have something like that. When it's like a part of the language that it has gems, but it's somehow not a part of the language that it can help you make one. It was. I saw it and I thought, oh yeah, of course. Why not just have it? Because I, I made myself a gem this year for the first time. I published a gem on the the gem store, the, the Ruby gem store, and uh, I had to go through and kind of try to learn how to do it properly. And there are two ways. There's kind of the bundler gem way, but then there's the other kind of old school way. So that probably made it a bit more complicated than it should have been. And, and there's, uh, then it's a very manual process for me, you know, to trying to kind of make sure I've got the right files in the place, make sure I kind of do it. Actually uploading it to Ruby Gems, very straightforward, very easy, but just kind of wrangling the files together, I found quite 
quite tricky. Unloader is shipping with Ruby now, isn't it? Uh, with newer versions. So I think I mean so. technically you could just install Ruby, then run bundle gem, and then whatever the name of your gem, and it's included. That's true in a way, yeah. 2.7. Yeah, but says it's been in since since yeah, two six oh preview three. Two six so, yeah. two seven. So that's recent. That that is recent. I think something that's missing. It's like if you look at what Rust is doing, they've gone a step further and they've bundled the environment management up to the language version as well. And so when you install Rust, you're really installing like a Rust version manager plus the package manager. Whereas Ruby, you still have to kind of opt in to you say, oh, I'm going to use a Ruby version manager first before you install Ruby and I think that's also, I've always thought that that was just a shame. That was just like such an obvious failure of the language that it's like, everyone's like, oh, you got to have to separately install this unrelated project in order to use Ruby first. It's it's so, I think that's one of the most unwelcoming aspects of the language, frankly. I mean, you don't actually just, you don't have to install Bundler to use Ruby. It's just Ruby is so much better with Bundler. It does surprise me that... Yeah. that it took so long for it to become native yeah. as, as I think back now. I don't think that I was concerned with that five years ago at all. But but now that I look back, now that we finally made it default, yeah. like I'm actually like hmm, pretty sure that like 10 years ago, we all literally stopped vendoring our gems and started using Bundler. So why didn't we just make it default then? Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is it wrong to say that Docker is my Ruby version manager? No, it's not wrong. <laughs> no, I do that too. I understand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, no, and I, I'm to, not. I'm not going to get into that kind of worms. So <laughs> to answer the question that we asked a minute ago, the uh, gem that I've been using that um, makes releasing gems easier is called Gem Dash Release or whatever, and I'll, I'll recommend it. I'll talk about it uh, for picks. Yeah. Is there anything else that we want to touch on? Are we ready to move on to picks? Yeah, let's go ahead and move on. Max, if people want to find out more about what you're doing or follow you online, where should they go? My GitHub. Silverhammer MBA. And I also, my blog is on my GitHub as well. I randomly post stuff there. And that's basically it. I don't use social media. So sorry, no Twitter. Yeah, it's probably a good thing. So, all right. Well, let's go ahead and dive into picks. Hey, folks, it's Charles Maxwood. And I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've put together the curriculum and I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people. And now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a masterclass. It's going to be a four-week masterclass where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. Luke, do you want to start us off? I have. I've been working my way through this Jeremy Evans book, The Polish Ruby, and it reminds me of the Ruby dash WC, which I used to use when I was uh, kind of more getting into Ruby seriously. And if you do Ruby dash WC and run it on your program, I'll tell you all the horrible mistakes you've made just through a combination of compiling the code to see if it actually syntax is correct. And the W gives you loads of helpful warnings, which I totally forgotten about. So Ruby dash WC. And to continue the toilet theme to these picks, I'd like to pick a command line utility called Toilet, Toilet and Figlet, 
are used to create ASCII words. So if you want a big banner when you log into your server that says your server name in really giant letters, for example, if you've been SSHing into the wrong server and running the wrong, the wrong commands and the wrong server by accident, Toilet is a great little t- utility to make big fancy text that comes up when you log in so you know which server you're on and you don't accidentally run commands on the wrong server. The other pick I'd like to pick is a talk given at the August meeting of the London Ruby Users Group by Tom Blomfeld. He's British, British, British like me, he's British. And he talks about 10 years, essentially, of building startups of Ruby on Rails. He did, I think it was Monero, a couple of others, and he's now an Asian investor. And really interesting talk from the point of view of someone who is actively investing in tech startups and how Ruby on Rails fits into that. Cool. And Darren, do you have any picks? Oh boy, I got to follow the toilet pick. Okay, so it's a good timing because we were talking about native apps today. Of course, we all love to write things in Ruby. So the web is great, but I also have, you know, I really like native applications. I tend to write them in Ruby. I have a lot of little utilities that I write and use, you know, things like maybe track hours that I'm working. Uh, I'm always creating like different games because life is more fun with games. And then also recently an app to monitor cryptocurrencies and look at investments. So my picks this week are first, I, I generally use the Gosu gem, which is a in case you're not familiar with it. It's the gem that gives you access to OpenGL drawing capabilities in Ruby. It's really per, pretty performant on my machine. I've never really had a, a problem with it. And then the other pick is the first of a number of projects that I'm going to be releasing. This is the first one. So this is called Ruby Simple Plotter, and it uses uh, some some basic widgets that are built on Ruby and Gosu. And you can essentially plot any file-based data set. You can give it arbitrary functions to plot, overlay them on top of each other. And so then I'll be releasing other projects down the line that sit on top of this, including some cryptocurrency apps. But at this point, I'm just ready to release this one. So it's uh, available on GitHub now. And looking forward to getting feedback on it. Awesome. And John, do you have any picks? Yeah. So I've got a couple largely inspired by some of our discussions today. So the first one that I wanted to pick, we we were just talking about, you know, gems. It it isn't really necessarily that easy to publish a gem. It's not like hard, but like you got to kind of go look it up, maybe look at like some other gems out there to see how you like want to arrange everything. If you release like a more complicated gem, then you're doing things like looking at the Rails repo and trying to decide if that pattern is good for you. The answer is it's probably not. But the point is you kind of get, get into this place where you're just like trying to figure out what you're supposed to do, right? Because you're trying to like figure out your your gem. And then after you release your gem, you push out a version, maybe you make some code changes, and then like two months later, you come back and you kind of forgot how you're supposed to push out the gem. And so that's, you know, maybe not the most ideal experience. It's a lot like mobile development, where you you just kind of like don't touch, unlike web development, where we're like doing all this stuff every day, we're practiced and it's like in the front of our brains and like that's easy to remember. I feel like one of the things that's similar in a way to mobile development is it just kind of like that context leaves our brains for a while. 
And uh, if you're really busy or something like, you know, just trying to get it back, trying to remember what you're supposed to do isn't always the easiest. So gem release, I, I don't know. I just ran. I don't even remember how. I think it was probably in a Ruby Weekly, which I read a lot. Also a great thing to check out. I think it was just in there and I was just like, oh, what's this? And I thought it was super cool. Basically, it, you configure it. It makes the process of releasing gems a lot easier because when you're trying to release gems, one of the things you got to do is you got to release the gem, then you got to like bump your version, then you got to like push it to Ruby gems, and like it's a multi-step process. It's not too hard, but this just automates the whole process. You do it in one fell swoop, and I like automating stuff. Love that. So this gem lets you do that. The other thing I was going to say is if you are, I, I mean, I think I think we talked about it a little bit today about why you maybe wouldn't want to pick fast lane. But but in my experience, like if you're just trying to enable teammates or if you have the same problem, I mean, to me, gem release is solving the same exact problem to me, which is like, hey, here's a thing that I don't do every day. I just kind of want to like automate as much of it as possible. And if I have a problem, I'll delve into it then. I think that Fastlane kind of fits as like one of those tools. So I do, I would recommend that to people. But I think that at the same time, I think Max made some good points today, and uh, you should keep in mind that if you uh, find that the tool is getting in your way, like obviously don't keep using a tool that's getting in your way. I think that's good. Awesome. I'll jump in with a couple of picks. My first non-tech related one is Taekwondo breakable boards. So my three kids are doing three or four of my kids are doing Taekwondo, and they have to do board breaks as part of their training. And so these are plastic rebreakable boards and they come in different sizes. So depending on their weight class or their age. And so that's really helped them out. They really enjoyed that. And my second pick is down in my basement, we don't have air conditioning down there. So it gets pretty hot. And so I have a whole bunch of lying around computer fans. So I found this 12 volt step up cable it's a USB, so it can plug into any 5-volt USB. It has a little built-in step-up to 12 volts to power a fan cable at full speed. So I 3D printed a shroud and attached the fan to that shroud with a little stand and then got this little voltage step-up cable so it actually blows out at full speed. And that's actually made quite a bit of difference just as I'm sitting downstairs at my CNC machine and stuff working. And Max, do you have any picks? Oh man, I didn't know I needed picks. I guess I mentioned it earlier. I do recommend checking out that FFI gem for Ruby. If you are intimidated by my book, if you don't know C, you're going to have a bad time there. But the FFI gem can get you pretty close. Maybe maybe you should pick Ember B. Or Ember. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I do pick my book though. You should try that first before you give up and go to FFI. Awesome. Well, Max... I appreciate you coming on today and I really enjoyed the discussions. Yeah, thank you. It was my pleasure. Well, that's all for this episode. We'll talk to you all later. Take care. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.